0: When Marcus invited me to come I was like I'm not an ethicist, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not even a humanities scholar, I'm an urban planner and so what that means is that this is going to be a pretty practical talk. In planning we try to tackle real problems in real places with real people so um, I'm not going to give a theoretical talk about the concept of the smart city. What I want to talk about is work that's emerging in progress. And there are some folks in the room who are helping to move that work along with me and I'll let them decide if they want to show who they are or not. Um, I'm on this big research team um, called GeoThink.ca and it's a team of ten academics across Canada and we've been looking, five years ago we started looking at open data and how open data changed the relationship between government and the public. Um, And over time, increasingly, the smart city has risen in this process and as a planner, I've been really interested in the rise of this technology and the application of its work in the communities in which we work. So what I'm going to share with you today is the evolution of thinking. and. Lots of it is coming in reaction to what happened on October 17th, which was that um, Google Alphabet and Sidewalk Labs, their um, urban planning and technology group, announced that they were going to invest $50 million in Toronto's waterfront. So there's been smart city conversation for a long time worldwide, but this was the biggest project of its kind in North America and it landed on our waterfront. And so um, you're going to see some interplay between my thinking and ideas. And there I've got some questions at the end that I really hope that we can all talk about together. I'm not going to go more than 45 minutes. Marcus gave me 45 minutes to an hour, but I may not even take that long. So, uh, And if you've heard me talk about this before, you may see bits and pieces of things. But this is really work in progress that's iterating. And I went back and looked at things that I was saying even four months ago. And it was interesting to see how the ideas have moved along. So this is fresh thinking. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. And here we go. So because it's Valentine's Day, I I wrote a Valentine's poem for you. Can anybody (laughs) read this? Anyone good at how's your binary to text translation? So here's my poem. Roses are red, violets are blue. Smart cities are sexy, but do they do it for you? And what I really want you to start thinking about as the premise of this presentation is what are the points of interest of the smart city for you, but for collectively for all of us What are our preoccupations? And in my title, I added Canadian in there. And Canadian's in there because to me, this technology is being developed worldwide. Um, The Americans are doing all kinds of stuff with it. The firm that's leading the particular project on the waterfront comes out of the United States. Um, But there are lots of values embedded in smart city technology and the algorithms that the smart city technology uses. And so I'm adding a Canadian piece in part because I want us to think about what's the Canadian preoccupation with this technology and what does it mean for all of us. And I'm focusing on the public piece, in part because I'm a planner. My code of practice and ethics requires me to work on behalf of the public good and the public interest, but that's also my natural inclination as a person. Some planners work largely in the land of economic development, my interest has always been in the relationship between local government and citizens, and how do we use the practice of planning to improve people's quality of life, to create better places to live, and deliver more equitable outcomes in terms of how people live. um, if you're hoping I'm going to speak a lot about entrepreneurship and regional economic development, that's not my thing. If you want to talk about that, I'm happy we can engage in that. But this will be a presentation that tilts heavily towards public interest in this topic. So this is the city of San Diego's, um, the county of San Diego's crest, and it says the noblest motive is the public good, and I really like that because it's an important thing to think about. What we see in the landscape of smart cities, and I guess I should talk about what I mean when I say smart cities. It's I think of smart cities as being urban spaces or community spaces in which technology and data are used to try to change things and optimize things and make them more efficient to try to deliver better outcomes. And what those better outcomes are depends on who the person is that's doing the programming. So I'm interested in the public good and I'm interested in how we start to frame what the public good is in Canadian smart cities. This is Dan Doctoroff. Does anybody work for Sidewalk Labs? Anyone in the room who's actually a sidewalk employee? I'm going to tease your boss for like two seconds. Don't take a picture of the next slide. He's a good human being, but I'm going to be cheeky. <laughs> he's the CEO of Sidewalk Labs. And he started this urban technology group um, with other people from Google. And they, he's asked this question in public. What would a city look like if you started from scratch in the internet era and built a city from the internet up? And that question to me as a planner is really interesting, but I want to turn it on its TED move on so no one takes a picture. And the way I want to frame the question for today is what happens if we build a city on the foundations of sustainability, equity, diversity, and inclusion? And then we ask, what role can technology and data play to deliver durable and measurable progress and change? So Dan Doctoroff is much more pithy than I am. My question is long. But it's the stuff at the end that really matters to me. If we start with a blank slate and we build the city around technology, we're going to optimize the city to serve the needs of technology. And I'm really interested in building cities that serve humans well. And they may not be opposite, but they're not necessarily the same thing either. And so I'm interested in asking, if we position technology and data in service to the things that matter to us, how much progress can we make? So there are lots of benchmarks against which to track. Uh, Many of you may be aware that, um, that the United Nations has created sustainable development goals. There are 17 of them. And these are global indicators to track progress around human, human well being. Um, and some of them are, are directly related to the smart city, like number 11, sustainable cities and communities. But these are internationally agreed upon indicators and values that people care about and agree that we need to track our progress toward things like poverty and zero hunger, good health and well being, quality education, gender issues. And so if we go back to the question that I just asked a minute ago, one of the things I think we should start thinking about is what really can technology do here? Is technology and the big data that it gathers going to make a difference across all of these? Will the progress be the same? Or are there areas where we're going to see a lot of resonance where technology can really do a lot and other areas where the work that we need to do to deliver the change that we want is going to be different? We scale down from the global to the local. There are myriad examples in Toronto in which um, we have things that we're tracking in terms of quality of life and sustainability and, and equity and inclusion. One of the most, um, you know, the longest standing public facing um, things that we have in Toronto is the vital signs report that comes from the Toronto Community Foundation. Have any you ever looked at it? Have you ever seen it? So it's a good point of reference. We also have census data, of course, but Toronto Community Foundation is trying to track the things that matter in our community over time They do it using good research and and rigorous methods. And they try to communicate it in a way that will resonate with civil society groups, the private sector, government, and and community members individually. Up top, I've got the graphic of the Official Plan indicators. For those of you who aren't planners, the Official Plan is the land use plan for the City of Toronto. And the City of Toronto, like other public institutions, increasingly has to measure progress. And so in the Official Plan indicators, they've got all kinds of things that they're tracking around, housing diversity rental replacements, privately owned public spaces, public art, downtown is a premier office location. So that's another articulation of priorities that we have localized in our city. And then the third example that I've got is from um, an organization called um, Parkdale's People Economy, which comes out of Park, which is a a not-for-profit organization, and it is also attached to the Parkdale Neighborhood Land Trust. I'm not sure how aware you are of really grassroots community economic development issues happening in Toronto, but. In Parkdale, um, in Thorncliffe Park, and in East Scarborough, we've got different kinds of not-for-profit organizations organizing around the issues that matter to them and trying to really intervene in the market and in policy and community forums to deliver the outcomes they need. And so for Parkdale, in their People's Plan, they've identified priorities like decent work, affordable housing, cultural development, community finance, community health, participatory democracy, and food security. So if you think about those indicators, I want you to be actively thinking while I'm talking, well, what's technology and data? How's it going to help with those things? And which ones are we going to see progress on, but where are we going to struggle? And these things matter in part because when we talk about smart cities, there's a lot of excitement. And I'm excited too to see what's going to happen down there. But I think behind the excitement we need collectively as a community to start pushing on the excitement to say what's really possible, what's possible in one year, what's possible in five years, what's possible down the road with change over time. And so this question of how can technology and data help us make progress and affect change on these kinds of issues is one I'd like you to keep top of mind. So as a planner one of the questions I ask a lot is who's planning the smart city? And I would argue that we've gotten pretty good at planning for land. We're not It's not perfect, but we are reasonably seasoned practice on that. But when you add land and technology together, the proposition gets much harder, in part because we're adding all of these layers of things that adds complexity to the community building process. And so what I'm going to focus on in the majority of the slides that follow are things that are emerging out of the discussions about the kinds of development that are going to happen on the waterfront and things that we might want to think about more. So this is my black box, okay, my Lego black box. And the question I want to ask you is what exactly do we do with this when we plan smart cities? Smart cities gather data. The data goes into, quite literally, often a proprietary black box, not often very open, an algorithm. The algorithm spits out results and then we do something with the results. And this black box for me presents a huge challenge as a planner because in the environments in which we work right now, we have. Um, access to information. We have the ability to look at the method. We're able to literally lift up the hood when people do analysis and say, what's that math look like? Do grade three, your teacher was like, show me your math? Show me your math is like the rallying cry for me as a planner in the smart city. So this black box algorithm business is tricky because if we're going to use this technology and data gathered to make decisions that are going to impact where we live, I think we need to be able to look at it and understand it. So not being able to tell how the math works because the company that created the technology makes money off the math is a tricky thing for me. And that is at odds with the public environment in which we plan right now. i want to use an example. I don't know how much you've followed. Maybe this happened to you too. Both Bell and Rogers have been focused on by GoPublic and other public advocacy and watchdog organizations about the way in which their sales staff have taken advantage of people around mobile phone contracts. OK, particularly seniors. People have been sold service that they can't use. People have been sold phones that don't work in the communities that they work in. The list goes on and on. And this is from, from Go Public. So she says that her in-laws were charged for internet service that they couldn't even use by bell, OK? So pause and think. If people can be hoodwinked or falsely sold technology, which we all kind of understand, like we all basically understand the internet, and we all basically understand what our mobile phones do, How on earth are we going to have good public oversight of technology and procurement related to the smart city if we can be taken advantage of around basic technology that's all around us right now? Technology, there's been a telephone for even longer than I've been alive, right? We know what telephones do. We understand telephone service. But even basic internet service. I mean, we've had home internet in people's homes, even when it was dial up, for a long time. And people are still being taken advantage of. So if we can't handle it with basic technology, How are we going to wrap our heads around what happens with smart city technology and also the artificial intelligence, the machine-based learning that goes on behind it? I'm concerned about that as a planner. Then we have this interesting um, relationship in Sidewalk Toronto. Sidewalk Toronto is Waterfront Toronto, which is our public agency, which represents the federal government, the Ontario government, and the city of Toronto. It's the agency that's developing Toronto's waterfront. We've got... A government organization and we've got a private sector firm and they've made this thing called Sidewalk Toronto so it's a public-private partnership we have those in in planning and development all the time governments are full of these kinds of working relationships but one of the things that intrigues me is what happens in terms of government obligations to open government And open government is a movement worldwide where governments commit to actions where they're going to be more open transparent inclusive and accountable and in our particular context the federal government and the province of Ontario have both made explicit commitments to the Open Government Partnership, which is an international organization for 68 member states at the state level. And the province is one of the few um, sub-state pilot participants. The province is there too. They've made open government commitments. The city of Toronto also has declared open government commitments on its website. So in this arranged partnership in Sidewalk Toronto, the government partners have made commitments publicly with real actions that are measurable to be open, transparent, inclusive, and accountable. And what I want to focus on next is how does that work in an organization that has a private sector partner using technology that's largely proprietary and difficult to understand. So there's some things I want to highlight here. So if we take this notion of the smart city and we add open to it, what does transparency look like? One of the questions asked by a colleague of mine, Teresa Scazza, very early on, this was a week after this project landed, is who owns all the data collected by the smart cities? And if you don't know Teresa's work, she's a Canada Research Chair in Internet um, and Intellectual Property at the University of Ottawa, um, and she's a lawyer. She's a very clear writer. You can understand what she has to say. I, it's easy for me, so you should take a look at her writing. But this question of who owns the data is really important. If we've got this hybrid organization with open government commitments, including open data portals, how do they navigate this? If you look at the sidewalk proposal, which is now you know almost four months old, there's some discussion about openness and I think there's some attention being paid to it, but this is a really important question for us to ask. How transparent is the process and who owns the data and what are they going to do with it? We need to think about that because the data is high value. Everybody agrees that if you're gonna, I mean, that's the whole premise of the smart city. You gather a whole bunch of data, you analyze it, and the results that you find have to be worth money, otherwise, nobody would bother to gather it, right? You know, and the investment in this project is fifty million dollars for one year of planning. So clearly people think there's gonna be a huge return on investment because otherwise they wouldn't have spent fifty million dollars trying to do this. Then what happens if we add the layer of accountability in? A colleague of mine, Bianca Wiley, if you don't know Bianca, you should, if you're interested in these kinds of ideas, She's one of the people pushing the hardest, I think, on this project in terms of public public good and outcome. She has a technology background and a civic engagement perspective, so she's a really rich critical thinker. She writes um, for Torontoist, their civic tech column, but she also publishes on Medium all the time. If you're interested in this, she's really worth looking at. And she published a piece January 20th that talks about the plan for <coughs> research and development with our civic data finally comes into focus. And she asked this, she makes this statement, we have policies and laws to guide innovation that we don't even understand, okay? And this is a really interesting thing. We've got this technology that's complicated. You, if you read about artificial intelligence and algorithms, you'll have computer scientists saying, we don't actually really entirely understand how this stuff works. We've got a black box. So we've got a government organization buying or partnering to access technology that we don't entirely understand. That's a bit tricky on the accountability side, okay? So there are interesting challenges there. And how do you? create a government procurement process that's open and transparent and accountable to buy stuff that you don't really know how to work with yet. These are interesting challenges. Um, I'm, just got <laughs> I'm not, it's not going to be on the video. It looks like I'm <laughs> making a scene figure just because in my lecture. We've got challenges. And, and just to be clear, I'm, I'm running down a whole litany of, of, of questions. It doesn't mean we can't resolve them, but we need to pay attention to the stuff now in the process, not down the road. But the procurement piece, around data is really tricky and needs a lot of attention. Then if we add the inclusive bit that's where for me as a planner I start to get really excited. So I don't know if you've read Craig Townsend's book, it's now almost four years old. He wrote the first kind of public focused book about smart cities. Um, And you can read these quotes while I'm talking but, but when you start to read a lot about smart cities there are some things that come up. One theme is the private sector partnership. Smart cities, aren't typically being developed by governments, they're being developed by private sector firms selling technology to municipal governments. And that's interesting for me as a planner because we have long histories of private sector firms selling us infrastructure. But we put that sales arrangement into regular procurement, but then the infrastructure has to go somewhere. So we have a land use planning process that we follow. And sometimes we have things like environmental assessment. So we have processes to deal with physical things being imposed on cities. We don't yet have, and we'll build them, we're going to have to as this technology comes up. We don't yet have infrastructure processes that account for technology being laid. Okay, so laying like wicked high speed broadband is not that different in, tr- than in terms of affecting future city outcomes than it is laying brand new pipes to deliver better water pressure. It's still infrastructure, it's going to affect people, and it'll probably lift up land values. So we need to be thinking about what's the planning process. That, that allows this technology to pl- take um, take place on the ground. There's some other kind of keywords that come up. One is automation and the other one is efficiency. One of the big drivers of people buying smart city technology is that governments are being pushed by everyone to be more efficient, right? We have an austere economic environment in which we want smaller governments and we want less money to be spent. That's kind of the dominant paradigm. and that's led to people being elected. And we can be smug about what's happened south of the border, but in Toronto, we had a mayor who was elected on a campaign to basically get rid of the gravy train, right? We think there's this perception that government is wasteful um, and that there must be ways to continue to find efficiencies. This technology is being sold as a way of helping with that. And you know, to be clear, I'm not advocating for inefficient government that's wasteful, right? But efficiency is one outcome. There are other things that we want to think about, too. The other thing is automation, and this comes To be an issue especially right now it's hard to read a newspaper or a magazine right now and not see something about artificial intelligence leading leading to job loss in the Canadian economy that if the projections are even half right the economic implications of artificial intelligence uptake on our economy are going to be staggering okay and there are discussions about basic income provision to help people make the transition into a new economy but this automation of things has many impacts One of them is job loss. And then the other piece is surveillance. And I'm not going to talk a lot about privacy and surveillance today, in part because it's not my area of expertise. But I would argue that in terms of the discussion about this project, it's probably the most developed public conversation happening so far. There's a lot of attention on it. There are a lot of very smart people paying attention to it. And it's further along than openness or inclusion or other issues. So I'm not going to touch it. But there are certainly people who are concerned about the surveillance piece. I am too. I'm just not going to elaborate on it much. So as a planner, when I think about a smart city, one of the things I really start to get worried about is what I call granular inequity. We talk about a smart city like a city is full of the same kinds of people. David Hilchansky's work in Toronto for the last 20 years has shown us that we have three different kinds of cities. And now he's done work with the United Way last fall to show us the variety of kinds of people we have across our region. So people who are in the dark red have very low um, individual average household incomes, and blue is very high. So we have one region, one great big region, but we've got many different kinds of people living here. So when we talk about the smart city, we have to start asking ourselves who's going to benefit and who's going to be challenged and who's going to suffer. And the the results aren't going to be the same across the board. We're going to be serious about this through an equity and inclusion lens. We have to break this down. And Townsend in his book said, poor communities will be at the mercy of those who can measure and control them from a distance. And so one of my real concerns as a planner is who are the elites of the smart city? Who are the people who are going to profit the most, but who are the people who are invisible? And the invisibility piece, the smart city ghost, is really important to think about. Because one of the things that I'm concerned about as a planner is this question of, do the people who provide input into the data that the smart city use end up having better privilege than those who don't? If the smart city gathers data, takes that data, optimizes it in the black box of the algorithm, spits out results that governments then use, if your data is not in there, then those results aren't going to speak to what you need. Okay? And that's a problem, if that's the only data set you use. And so I'm interested to understand, as we start to see this project unfold and other ones too, will the algorithm be sensitive enough to redistribute and will we feed the machines with the good kinds of data that it needs to give equitable outcomes? So, I'm going to try to give you an example that's pragmatic with a little bit of cheek. One of the questions we're asking inside our research group is whose data sets are being used to train the machines that are learning? Our, um, artificial intelligence is machine learning, deep learning, and machine learning, and there's data that gets put into it. And we really need to start asking hard questions if we're concerned about the public good about whose data is going in. And this is a real example from the city of Ottawa. Is anyone a road biker? Anyone like a hardcore cyclist? Okay. Excuse me, I'm going to tease just a little bit, OK? City of Ottawa, uh, 2016, bought data from Strava. Does anyone use Strava? Bike friends in the back, are you Strava users? Strava is an app that allows you to track all kinds of things, including where you ride your bike. OK, so it's geospatially located bicycle data. OK, Ottawa bought that data to inform its bicycle planning process, OK? And I got this from Cycling Magazine. And look at the person who's biking on the top. That's like a mini thousand dollar bike. Okay, that's so. This is Strava appeals in part to people who ride very expensive road bikes. Also, affectionately known as mammals, middle-aged men in lycra, and they have their own documentary coming out. I know many Strava. I'm old. Lots of people my age ride very expensive bikes. It's like the new midlife crisis. No more mistress. No more motorcycle. It's a road bike. Okay. Okay. And this is this. I'm pushing the limits of this to make a point, but does anyone know David Taylor? He's a very active Strava contributor and he rides bicycle routes to make art. So he wrote this is a route that he wrote to make a bear. Okay? He's not everybody who uses Strava is like him, but this kind of data is in the Strava data set. So City of Ottawa buys Strava data to plant its bike routes. Are those bike routes gonna suit the needs of people like that? Not so much if that's the only data set they use. Okay, so whenever we talk about the data, training the machine, we need to ask the question, whose data is it? It's very, very important to think about. All right? Something else to think about. When we, I know I used this slide a couple weeks ago, but I'm still, I think this is an important conversation. When we download apps, you have to agree to a terms of service. Okay, every time you get a new piece of software, you have to agree. How many of you actually read the terms of service? Okay, and how many of you get annoyed when you have to click through, like when your iPhone updates and you say, I accept, and then it's like, did you really read this? Do you accept? Yeah, yeah, click, click. We don't pay attention, okay? But those terms of service are important because they define how your data is going to be used, and who they're going to sell it to, and what your privacy issues are. So companies have terms of service to let us use their products. What if we turn it around and we say, okay, good people in the land of the smart city, if you're going to make money off of our data, this is our terms of service. This is what we need in exchange for what you're going to get from us. So there's some food for thought in there. We have terms and conditions too. I don't know what they are, but I think collectively, we should start thinking about what those things look like. So I'm going to argue that one of the public good outcomes of this whole adventure of smart cities for which we're really not ready is we need to start thinking about data by the people for the people, okay? Whose data are we going to use to train the machines? Do we want to be deliberate about making sure that machines are learning from data sets that represent all kinds of people, that acknowledge the granular inequity. There are some pros and cons to this. How many of you are nervous about your data being in a machine learning data set? Well, I, I am too, but we should all acknowledge that if you use any free Wi Fi, free Wi Fi, you use any app, that data is probably already training a machine already. But we need to be much more careful, I think, about the quality of the data that goes in. Okay, we also need to acknowledge that not everybody wants to participate. And then we need to think about who's not there and what are we missing, and how do we need to backstop what we're missing to make sure that the data analytics and, and the policy changes that come from that aren't distorted by the people who are willing or not paying attention. Okay, now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and think about the design of, of smart cities. We've talked about The planning we've talked about the governance now i want to talk about design i'm going to go back way back to 1960 to kevin lynch who's an architect or a planner in here all right i'm going to go welcome to the history of planning okay (laughs) kevin lynch has he wrote a lot about the imageability of cities and one of the things that he talked about was that trying to understand how people imagine the places in which they live provides really valuable feedback to the kinds of people who design and shape those environments because people's images of their cities matter. Those mental maps are really useful pieces of information. And he introduces this idea of legibility. And he says, a highly imageable city, in this particular sense, would seem well-formed, distinct, remarkable. It would invite the eye and the ear to greater attention and participation. And Lynch argues that when cities are legible, when you can understand where you're going, when you can read a space, you're more comfortable, and you're going to have a much more enjoyable experience. And so, one of the questions that interests me as a planner is, what does legibility look like in a smart city? Okay, how do we create these spaces in a way that people actually understand what's going on? And this is one of the renderings from the vision document that that Sidewalk Labs submitted. And you know, it's it's a gorgeous piece of communication work, right? It's full of really amazing, ambitious urban ideas, and you know, I. One of the things I'm pretty confident about about this project is Waterfront Toronto builds nice places. Like they have, we've got better public realm on the waterfront than we've ever had before. They are great commissioners and developers of good public spaces. So I'm not so worried about the quality of the public space, but this isn't just public space. This is a massive data gathering exercise, and it's also an urban experiment. So I think if we're thinking about the public good, it's incumbent upon us to think about how do we communicate to people that they actually are in a space that's different. So what could happen in a space like this? How do you signal to this woman who's walking with her laptop that data is being gathered about her that's different than would be in any other part of the city? How do you get people to actively participate and and consent? One option is to use technology that we have in our pockets, that something happens with the smartphone that you have that they're going to use to gather the data, where you actually have to consent to your data being gathered when you enter a space. It's a very difficult thing, I think, to get people to be attentive to this kind of work. You probably pay attention the first time, second time, but having people be actively vigilant about signage and interventions like push notifications on phones, it's an interesting challenge I think. And I think one good example in the life around us right now is how often do you pay attention to a video camera surveilling you on the street now, right? We've had closed circuit television for 15 years, 20 years in cities now. And there are signs up, but how often do you actually notice? Right, they become part of the furniture around us. So we just stop paying attention to them, and so this notion of constant vigilance is something that I think is worth thinking about in the context of smart cities and the public good. Then I want to focus, lastly, on this notion of civic engagement in the smart city, and this is the cover from the recently released civic engagement report that Sidewalk Labs um, sent out. I guess it's been a week and a half now, and in it. There are 13 different types of engagement exercises. I don't know if you've had a look at it, but there's going to be a citizens reference panel. There's going to be a summer camp for kids co-hosted with the Y. There are going to be internships for people 19 to 24 years old. There are going to be town halls. There are going to be all kinds of events that are happening. Um, So one of the things I think that I'd like you to think about as I start to wrap this up is how do we expand the capacity of civil society to meaningfully participate in this process? Okay, I've talked earlier about how this technology is complicated It's difficult to buy and it's difficult to understand how do we help people get to the point where they can be active participants in a conversation that matters because the conversation over the next year is going to be really important one of the things that sidewalk Labs said when they said they chose toronto is they picked us because we're diverse the diversity of our city was one of the reasons why they wanted to come and that many many people if you look at the media hits around this project the world is literally watching what's going to happen with that project and it's going to be reproduced. And so there's both an opportunity and a challenge, I think, that, that has both pros and cons. And I, I'm both excited and discomforted by it. Around thinking about how do we engage in this? What's our civic obligation to participate? How do we shape this in a way that starts to meet people's needs? How do we assert the public good? And how do we create a process by which many people's needs are surfaced? One of the interesting things about this project is it's a tiny piece of land, relatively speaking, on the waterfront. Right, do people in North Etobicoke, are they going to participate? I mean, it's their city too, but it's pretty far from home, right? But there may be things that happen there that reproduce even inside the city of Toronto. And so there's a little bit of, um, it's not really urgency because I don't want to construct an emergency, but, but there is this opportunity now, I think, to meaningfully participate and engage, to try to shape this technology, its development and its application, in a way that's really mindful i would argue of the public interest and the public good but then i would say in toronto do we have our collective capacity to have that conversation are we a city that can have a big civic conversation about what matters to us we don't do that particularly well i would say if you look at the scarborough subway discussion which is highly contentious mm-hmm. um it's divisive okay and it people have different feelings about it depending on how closely impacted they are by it council has you know, done all kinds of things around that. The is weighed in. That's not a shiny example. I don't think of a good civic conversation. But a really important caution, I think, for us, if we're going to talk about this project, because it's a big infrastructure investment on one piece of land that has a ripple effect and implications across the city. So I think we need to bring our best kind of civic dialogue face forward on this one. We're all going to need to dig in. But then how do we do it in a way that people's voices are heard. How do we help get the information out in a way that people can access it? Are we going to expect people to come downtown for public consultation? No, we can't do that. Like, it, you can't just have one location for anything in Toronto. So we need this needs to be a citywide conversation, okay? And one of the questions I have is how are these conversations going to feed into the planning process? There's many layers to this. We've got Sidewalk Toronto, the Waterfront Toronto Sidewalk Labs consortium convening these kinds of conversations. Waterfront Toronto on its own will have a whole bunch of obligations as the agency that's responsible for this. The City of Toronto will have a whole series of obligations for this because they're the people who guide the land use planning processes. But starting to map out, I think, how the kinds of conversations that are going to unfold into this report will evolve over the next year are really important. And being transparent about that will help people understand how to participate. The final thing I'll say is that I think this consultation report has many really good things in it. There's, it's a really, it's, I view it as a platform, or the nucleus of the beginning of the conversation. One of the things I would have liked to have seen is a fund for community groups to be able to get money to host the kinds of conversations they want to host. Someone had to start. I think that this is a good start. There's been a whole series, I don't know if you've looked at it in the Torontoist, but Bianca Wiley got a small group of us together. We articulated. I mean, like, 35 questions three months ago about this kind of project. And then 60 other people have participated in the list of grown. So there's a list of community questions that have emerged. Other people are going to have their own questions. One of the next steps, I would argue, that would really show that we're open to a good conversation would be host access to money to convene your own conversation. So if you're a community group of, I don't know, some, let's say, like owl watchers in High Park, and you really think the smart city is going to have an impact, It would be great if you could get access to a facilitator or space or donuts or coffee or something to help you host the kind of conversation you want to have. Some kind of fund to support grassroots conversations will leverage and amplify the extent at which we talk about this, but it will also engage more people. The other thing that will be really important is it will show us what matters (coughs) to people rather than asking them to react to the things that we think matter. And I think it needs to go both ways. I think that the people doing the development work, it's really important that they get feedback on the things that they're thinking. That's a vital part of the planning process. Given the magnitude of this, but also given the implications (coughs) and how new this is, we need to create the other space as well. So it's not an or, it's an and. We need the space for other questions and conversations to surface. And then we need to figure out how those things find their way into the planning process too. So this is a tremendous opportunity. It's really exciting institutions like this one and like the one i work at universities have a big role to play so do public libraries i think we've got and other community-based organizations with broad reach but i would argue the libraries may be one of our best allies in this next year of discussion because we have libraries in every corner of the city they're physically accessible they're politically neutral spaces you don't have to identify yourself to come in and literally all people are welcome in the library so those things really matter and i think you know, If I had could turn on the budget taps, I would throw money at the public library to help them start to have these kinds of conversations. So I've got seven final things I'm going to ask as we, as we start to wrap up. How do we frame the public good in the Canadian smart city? So one of the things I think I want to leave you with is are tech and data going to drive the agenda? Or are we going to say, this is the city we want. These are the issues that matter. And tech and data are going to serve us. That's one thing I'd like us to think about. Then I want to think about what are the limits and the opportunities of tech and data to actually make a difference there's a whole bunch of people I'm so lucky I have some of my students here from Morrison I'm in the first year of the planning program and this is the exact assignment that we're working on right now for the next three weeks students are answering these kinds of these two kinds of questions and trying to produce public facing infographics to help members of the public start to understand the gap between what's said and what's possible and what role data and tech can play Then I want to know what role government's going to play, and are they going to bring their open government commitments into this partnership and into this process, and how will that open government work start to trickle down? I want to know who's going to thrive and who's going to struggle in the smart city in Toronto. And if we can get ahead of this and start to think about who it's challenging for, then we can start to build safety nets and supportive infrastructure, or say no, or redirect. But we need to figure this out sooner rather than later if we're concerned about the public good. I want to know how much attention we're going to play to the black box. Okay, this is one of the first times where something this big has landed in a city like this in a democratic and inclusive planning environment. Um, The city of New York has a whole task force on algorithmic governance that they've just struck in the last four months. And the people that are being appointed to that, it's a highly political process receiving a ton of attention. They've had public hearings about the ways in which the governance of algorithms will unfold in their urban environment. So New York's leading on this, we need to pay attention. Then I want to know what kinds of new planning tools, both in terms of policy and design and governance do we need to hold the space for the public good here. And we have good precedent for this. Planners, we intervene in markets on behalf of the public good all the time. That's our job. So we've done this for buildings. We have Section 37 agreements. If you want to build a building taller than it's supposed to be, you negotiate with a counselor. You pay extra money. You get your height. We get your money. You put that money into public something. Art, parks, skating rinks, dog grass, whatever. We do this all the time what other tools and techniques do we need to hold public good if we're going to move forward on this project? And then the last question is, how do we actually have the conversation about what the public good is? Okay, and we've talked, I talked a little bit about that, I'd be interested to hear from you. Um, I, I talk about the public good, I should probably make that plural. I don't pretend to think for two seconds that we're going to be in agreement on all the good things or the challenging things that are going to come. There will be many vibrant, fractious conversations, but now is the time to have that. because. If we really care about sustainability, if we care about equity, if we care about inclusion and diversity, if we can bake it in now before this stuff is designed and built and implemented, then that we're exporting a Toronto way of, of pursuing quality of life that will be replicated because whatever happens here is going to go somewhere else and it's going to morph and change. But if we get it baked in here, there's a real, I think that's a, a tremendous um, contribution in terms of our engagement with this technology. So. The slide I'll leave you with is what's your smart city civic side hustle? What are you going to do over the next eight months as this process unfolds? And how are you going to participate? What are the issues that matter to you? And how are you going to help other people join this conversation if it's something that really matters? That's it. Thank you.